0: Being right does not mean that you were right yesterday in your hypothesis. Being right is a forward-looking and, and a forward-looking only uh-huh. issue. And that is very difficult for a lot of people to to digest, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time and energy in our in our subconscious trying to rationalize our behavior, trying to figure out, oh, well, you know, I'm a good person. Why did I why did I run that red light? Why did I go 90 miles an hour? Why did I make those poor decisions? And frequently, we allow those rationalizations to bring us to a compromise in the future. Well, cool. Then I'm going to do half of that next time. If it was wrong, don't do any of it. Right. Just just let it go. You're done. That was yesterday. And all you have left is today and tomorrow. That's it. That's all you got. Focus on that. And the best thing you can do for today and tomorrow is not to rationalize yesterday. Spend a little bit of energy to understand why. And then use that to inform how do I make decisions going forward. We stand today.
1: This is method the with method. A shout out. the data the
2: business method.
1: The business method podcast.
3: The business method podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs systems, methods, tools, and tactics.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today, the billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer laird hamilton the first black woman to build a billion dollar company janet halroyd world's top investment expert jim rogers and the list goes on and on all of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using apple spotify youtube google and any podcast app you prefer also you guys have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode.
3: The Business Method.
2: Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermozzi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network connect with some of the brightest minds in business today and help one another overcome business challenges faster you can learn more about our community at the remember subscribe to stay updated and now let's hop into today's show
3: the business method podcast featuring chris reynolds
2: Welcome to the Business Method series of interviewing 100 people that have built companies worth a billion dollars or more. And our guest today falls perfectly into that category. He actually turned down Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, multiple times to spearhead the research and design arm of Amazon's data mining and personalization team. He finally folded to Bezos, later saying that it was the best decision he ever made. After working with Bezos, he went on to launch the $5 billion real estate brokerage Redfin, He then launched Rich Relevance, a company that offers personalized shopping experiences for large retail brands, and recently started Deep Sentinel, an AI-based home security service. His name is Dave Selly sellinger and he is on the podcast today. Dave, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Chris,
0: doing great. It's uh, a little early in the morning on this side of the pond, but but off to a good start. I'm already like three quarters of the way through my first cup of coffee, so we will make this exciting.
2: Good, good. I hope there's. Are you doing bulletproof coffee?
0: You know, I do during the weekdays usually. Uh, today I did just uh, just cream, just because I got up a little bit late. My wife came in on a flight uh, last night, and if you're reading about the global disasters in the airways, it is a hundred percent true. She was like two and a half hours at the airport to get her luggage. Oh so yeah, I didn't. Even- Airport till like one thirty last night. Oh, so wow. oh wow! I uh, I need to just get up, pour the coffee down my throat, and uh, and get up
2: and get going. Get going, good. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show, man. And I've heard a lot of great things about you. And I know we have a mutual friend through Noah Kagan who's been on the show yeah. before. And he's and a big
0: bulletproof guy too, of course, right?
2: Yeah, I uh, I have to say I drank bulletproof coffee one time at a conference in the afternoon, and I went into the conference and fell asleep. And so it didn't, it didn't do it for me, but everybody else raves about it.
0: You no, know, I, so, so I don't do Bulletproof in the same way a lot of people do. I, I have a buddy who's like way smarter than me about like managing his body and, and everything like that. And so he mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time, I wouldn't call him my coach cause he's just my friend. I don't pay him or anything like that. We spent a lot of time kind of talking about practices and he's like, you know, five nine, one ninety, and and benches 7,000 and a half pounds. <laughs> uh, and, and he uh, he literally bends the bar, but he's not, he's not, not that much. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. He's massive, and uh, and we mountain bike together, so we get a lot of time to kind of talk through things. And He introduced me to managing your coffee as a complete nutrition uh vehicle in the mornings, and so he and I have been like kind of iterating on some different things. We, we like go through the monk fruit at Costco and analyze all the chemicals in it and mm-hmm. and where we've landed recently is like this combination of turmeric and uh collagen and cinnamon and I put ginger in mine because I'm, I'm Chinese and I love having some ginger just kind of like keep my, my body going peppermint uh cocoa powder coconut oil obviously butter uh and coconut milk maybe another three it's like it's a full contraption. My kids hate it. They, they're like, daddy, you spend more time making your coffee than, than mommy spends making breakfast for everybody. What's, <laughs> what's going on? So it's, you know, I, I think Bulletproof really can be something that you make into something for yourself. And and so he's on a different path. That what my buddy Josh and I are on different paths because we've kind of iterated on what it is that works the best for our bodies. Yeah. And, uh, and if you open up your entire kitchen and you're like, what do I want to put into my coffee? That's the way I kind of think about Bulletproof versus like, some kind of externally prescribed approach.
2: Yeah. And the thing too, it's so individualized. So like we have to try, you you know, we have to try something, see if it works for us, try something else, try add a little ginger, add a little turmeric, you know, see, get the perfect. I mean, all of
0: our bodies are different. Metabolism is different. Our autonomic nervous systems are different. And so you got to find, you know, like I have connective tissue stuff. So that's why I have way more of the collagen than he does. And, you know, again, it's just, it's just the thing. It's a, it's kind of an interesting way to start the day. And I have found though, that by getting the right nutrients into my body early, I tend to have the energy where, you know, everybody around me in the morning is like, Jesus, dude, slow down.
2: Really? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Well, I I definitely, like we talk about high performance a lot on the show. So I definitely want to talk about more of your daily routine and, and diet and stuff and sleep schedules, but we'll leave that to the end as a little teaser. Sure. But we want to dive into it because you have an amazing resume. You've done some really incredible things over your career. And and we'll just start off with the elephant in the room. You had Jeff Bezos seeking you out to start an R&D team at Amazon. And what was it about you that made Jeff want you you to spearhead this?
0: You know, I've asked myself that same question, right? So at the time... Uh, unfortunately, I had a sufficiently large ego to not worry about that question, because it was <laughs> obvious that anybody should want me on their team and and you know bust their ass. As I've kind of gotten older and I've reflected on the moment a little bit, where I think I've landed is again you know get to kind of zip back to 2002 timeframe, 2001 2002 timeframe, and what Jeff was trying to do was bring the operational efficacy of data that he had seen in his background on the financial trading side into an operational business, meaning I want to use data directly to make money, which, you know, speaking to your audience and speaking to the world post, you know, SEM and and, and Facebook and everything is obvious, right? It's obvious that that's doable. It's obvious that there are businesses that help you do that. You can, in fact, hire vendors and agencies to do all that for you now. Mm -hmm. At that time, though, literally no one had done it. And so Jeff had been going through the process of hiring a lot of academics to do this. He'd hired professors, he'd hired PhDs in, in data and statistics who all promised him, I can do this. In fact, as I learned kind of the second week on the job, I was the fourth person in my role in the course of a couple of years. And, you know, it's like one of those great Steve Jobs stories where, you know, where, where did, uh, where'd that team go? I'm like, oh no, no, they're they're not here anymore, don't worry about <laughs> and, uh, and that. And then it happened like three times. And so I'm like, oh, cool. So this is the chicken who thinks everything's just fine today, right up until tomorrow when the hatchet comes out, you know? And, and, uh, and so I took that kind of seriously, and I was like, all right, so what, what's different about me? Why am I here? Because mm-hmm. I was not a PhD in statistics. I was not a professor. I was not a highly academic person. And what I think you really wanted was somebody who could speak to and channel that energy. I, I had a lot of background in artificial intelligence and machine learning and data management, but I was not motivated by the same things that those types of people were meaning publishing uh, papers and and developing an algorithm that could live in the sky and nobody knew about it. I was motivated by doing stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, right before Amazon, I think the part of my story that, that really kind of drove Amazon's interest was I had partnered with a little coffee company in my hometown, called Dutch Brothers, which is now a, a like huge, multi-billion dollar uh, coffee company. And I'd asked them if I could be a, a tiny partner in the, in the business and just run their technology. And so we started a little JV together and did that. And I had discovered SEM. I had discovered Google's AdWords and, and it wasn't that big a deal. There weren't agencies that could do this for you again at the time that there was nothing. And I had found this opportunity for economic arbitrage where I was buying tons and tons of ads and selling tons of high-end coffee stuff and making just crazy uh, contribution margins. Mm-hmm. So not just your typical kind of like you know thirty-five percent gross margin business, but thirty-five percent gross margin where my total OpEx was like two percent. Okay. And because I was I wasn't spending that much to acquire people, I was just drop shipping things. And, uh, so it's making millions of dollars, like doing almost, this is, you know, again, you mentioned Noah Cagan, right? Let's bring him in and we can, <laughs> we can do this story. Right. And, uh, and so I was interviewing with Amazon and I told them this and they were like, wait, so you're, you're buying ads from Google. I was like, yeah, yeah. So I buy an ad from Google for like 50 cents per a click. And because I sell all this really unique products, these really unique products. They convert it like fifty percent. So I'm paying a dollar for a conversion. Someone buys a four hundred dollar coffee maker. I make hundred and seventy five bucks. Nice. And I pay a dollar fifty to have it fulfilled. So my total optics is two fifty. I put two hundred bucks <laughs> in my pocket. I do that a couple hundred times a day.
2: Nice. What year was this? Just so two thousand two, two thousand one, two thousand two. Wow.
0: <clears throat> and uh, again, like going back to that, but I guess we're going to probably have some reche- recessionary behavior right now. It was a time when everyone's pulling back their marketing spend. So Google had just launched the world's best marketing platform, and none of the big brands are spending on it. And I was like, "Sweet, no competition, you know, open field, it's mine." And so I just crushed. I mean, just just literally crushed that. And and so Amazon saw that as not just seeing the data, not just analyzing the data, but acting on it, acting on it, acting on it, testing, experimenting. And I had told them about all the times I'd failed and all the things that I'd, I'd screwed up. And that I think was what they wanted was somebody. Who could see an opportunity, analyze it, understand it, pull in the data, but then act and continue to act despite all of the different challenges that occurred. You know, this is an entrepreneurial show. Right. That's a DNA that every entrepreneur will know. But what I had, I think, that was unique was the ability to tie that into, you know, very deep data roots at the time.
2: But you had to be really young. Like, how old were you then? Really what? Sorry? Young
0: i well, I mean, I am really young now. Uh, you still yeah, are, so, yes, of
2: course. How <laughs> old were you? How young were you in two thousand one, two thousand two? I was twenty, twenty
0: three, something like that. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. Incredible.
0: So, yeah. yeah so- it was a great, great run. It was. It was really neat to get to do that. Um, I mean, I even didn't. I was so egotistical. I didn't even really get like phased when I would meet with Jeff Bezos when everyone else was like oh my God, I got a meeting with him once every couple quarters or whatever. And I was like meeting with him every day for the first little bit and then every week. And, uh-huh. you know, I mean, he was intense, like, like, right? Like he was intense, but it wasn't like I was scared of him more than his behavior. Uh-huh. Whereas people were just scared of his existence and then scared by, and you know, intimidated by behavior. Right. I just dealt with him. Okay. He's intense today. Like, don't don't stick your finger into the fire right? And, and, <laughs> you know. yeah, it was amazing to get to work with him his his level of intensity was off off the rails.
2: What was the size of Amazon back then?
0: I think it was about 1300 corporate employees so it was, it was sizable but it wasn't massive
2: right What is it now?
0: I don't even know I mean five more digits than that
2: <laughs> yeah no yeah okay and and so how long did you end up spending with with Amazon?
0: about two years.
2: Okay. And then you, you basically co-invented Amazon or created Amazon Advertising, right? The- yeah. So there were a couple
0: of different things that, that it built there. Amazon Advertising, the, by far the biggest, mm-hmm. uh, right? I mean, I think they're doing like $35 billion in in revenue now at like 80% gross profits. So yeah, that, that that's definitely a pretty big division. Uh, I also did a bunch of stuff in personalization and, and data analytics, a bunch of patents, and, and a lot of learning. You know, I mean, I think a lot of these these things were like the, the advertising wasn't, I didn't set out to, to build advertising. It was really just about like digging into the data in Amazon and finding the places that we had opportunities that were not prioritized enough by senior management or didn't have the right answer. And, and we just needed to do more experiments and figure it out.
2: Yeah. Why'd you only decide to stay for two years?
0: So about 12 months in, uh, I started looking for a house. Yeah. And I had this real estate agent who was a friend of a guy that I used to go to a bar with. Great way to meet somebody to help him make that <laughs> decision, by the way.
3: Like,
0: do, that. do that for yourself. And so we'd already done one offer and it didn't work out super well. And he was trying to convince me to put more money into the offer. And so we go to a bar and we sit down, we're having a drink. And I think I had a friend with me at the time who was also kind of like interested in doing real estate investments. And so we're sitting talking with this guy and I finally realized like, Hey, let me, let me learn more about this person. That's providing me advice on this $850,000 investment in 2002. Right. And, uh, or 2003, sorry. And, and, um, so I find out that he has dropped out of high school and, you know, had just kind of a, a tough life and has, has recovered and built this business around real estate and, you know, who we to you, right? Like, I think that's a great story. Yeah. Uh, and if that's your friend, like high fives and buying beers and that's, that's sweet. Providing me financial advice on how to invest in a property. I realized that his only interest in having me increase my offer was not because that property was worth more. In fact, the is probably worth less than my original offer. Mm-hmm. It's just cause he only gets paid. If the deal goes through, he gets exact, you know, on one side of the fence, he gets zero. And on this side of the fence, he gets 25,000 bucks. Hey, I like, I like the side of the fence where I make 25,000 bucks that I've had kind of a hard life. Why wow. don't you spend some more money and I get 25,000 bucks. We both win <laughs> except for you lose. But other than that part, right? <laughs> it's great. And I was like, Oh my God, this guy's called my agent and he has none of my best interests at heart, whether bright and, and, and really shrewd or dull and, and, and like bottom of the barrel. It doesn't matter. He doesn't want me to win. He wants him to win. Right. And that's what he should want, right? Like, you know, fine. Like, that's that's fine. But that's a broken system for individuals to be doing that. And so I, I got really passionate about how screwed up that industry was, that the agents had all this information that, that you didn't get access to as a, as a person when theoretically it should be open. So I went around and I found some of the people that were like-minded, um, this guy named David E. Rocker and Michael Doherty, who had, they'd been kind of trying to figure out how to crack real estate open.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, David, especially, was like uber passionate about like, this is broken. We shall destroy it. And I loved that energy. And so we teamed up. I became an advisor for the company. Initially, they were unable to get traction operationally. And so finally I said, how about this? I am going to build your product. We're going to change the product entirely and I'll join the team as a a co-founder. So I joined as co-founder, built a team of eight engineers at Amazon and Microsoft. We all moonlighted till three o'clock in the morning and built Redfin. And when it launched it, it was like
2: it was literally like trying to get,
0: catch wildfire in a bottle. It was insane. It's
2: just it's going up like crazy.
0: Oh my gosh. The the very first day we launched Redfin, it had four hundred thousand unique visitors. Wow. 2000, 2003, three, two thousand four, right? Like wow. so, so I mean monster. This is two thousand four. And uh it was Q three two thousand four. 400,000 visitors the first day. I mean, I, I had turned the servers on at like 2.30 in the morning the night before, went to bed, go to my coffee shop, and it's just already, the servers are just on fire. And uh, and it's because we built the very first interactive mapping application. We put all the public record data out there on the internet for the very first time. It was a bunch of like cease and desist letters the next day. Um, <laughs> things that nobody had ever done before. And that's, you know, that's how you change the world, right? We, we, we did that and uh, it was awesome. Everybody could see how much Bill Gates had spent on his house. Everybody could see how much their, their neighbor had spent on their house. Everybody could see how much, you know, all these things that, that again, like we're, we live in a world where that's just normal, but you right. couldn't do that before. There was no Google Maps. There was no Apple Maps. That Redfin was the inspiration for all of those systems as well. And, uh, and so it was really a, a combination of a really amazing user experience and data and, and analytics and, and, and ultimately AI to be able to to really use all those data for something interesting. So the, the long answer to the question of I couldn't stay at Amazon. Once we did that, there's no way I could stay at Amazon. I had to go to do Redfin full time.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I want to talk more about Redfin, but but just a couple of questions about working with working at Amazon, and working with Bezos. What what do you think, Dave, were a few of the most important lessons you you learned from him?
0: One, I learned more from knowing him and then following him after I left. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll stick with that one because I learned a little bit of it while I was there. But it was the conviction to a future can be incredibly strong. Conviction to a specific solution that gets you to that future is, is, I think, a failure case. The distinction, right? So a lot of people know Amazon Alexa. Love my Alexa, does this, does this for me.
2: Yeah, don't say her and name too people, loud. She'll start talking. Yeah, about I know, right? right
0: now. Amazon Alexa, <laughs> buy a $100 of Dutch Brothers coffee, right? And uh, buy it now. Okay, I think I got the timing right uh-huh, there. You got it. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, I mean, most people know that as, as Amazon's successful hardware product and Fire TV and things like that. Do you know what Amazon's first hardware product was? No. The Fire phone. After, after the, really? after the, after the Kindle, the Kindle doesn't really count them because that's that the
3: same. yeah okay
0: Firefoam was their first kind of broad-based consumer electronics product. And the reason you don't know it, obviously, because it didn't continue and it failed and it was horrible and blah, 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 blah. Jeff Bezos knew that hardware was a part of the future, but he didn't, he wasn't wedded to this path or this path or this path or this path. He was open to the data that told him here's the lowest friction way to navigate to that future mm, that you believe in. okay, And it's a fine line, right? I mean, if, if you have too much conviction about your view, you're crazy. If you have insufficient, you, you run away at the first failure, right? And so finding balance is incredibly, incredibly difficult. But the way that I, I've internalized watching him was that in every meeting, every daily interaction, every weekly interaction, every monthly interaction, with, with one exception, he absorbed the situation as data. A failure, data. A success, data. You can you know lick your wounds a little on this side and celebrate this side a little bit. But really, both of them are historical events. And so they're data. They're, they're, they're truly, as it relates to what do we do today, nothing more than data to inform what is the next step. Hmm. And whether it was something that you really believed 10 minutes ago, and now you have data that says it's completely wrong or otherwise. And that... If you really have conviction about a belief in the future, the best thing you can do is not fight the data. It's to embrace the data and find your way through this maze that you don't control. Mm. And I saw that in a bunch of different examples where Jeff would come into a meeting and and again, whether it was successful or, or a failure, his mentality within 30 seconds was exactly the same. What do we do next? What do we do next? What do we do with that? All right. Congratulations.
2: What's next? What we do with that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And, uh, and, and 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 like, yeah. not to reduce people because people are very important, but like, if you aren't the person to take the next step, still pat you on the back. Thank you very much. And we need to find the right person to carry the ball forward. And, And it just, it was a very intense attitude driven towards a vision of the future that, that embraced all of the different realities along the way to that future. And I, I very, very much respected that. And then the, obviously the, the second half of that is just the intensity required to overcome all the resistance, the resistance of organization, the resistance of politics, the resistance of uh, failures, and to continue to strive for I mean, again, like I said at the beginning, I was the, the fourth person in my role at the company. He had hired someone with great conviction, given them three to nine months to go do this thing. And then let them go and then hired the next person to go do the same thing. Because he believed that data were going to be an unlock for the
3: company. Right.
0: And he didn't know whether, all right, this this path, we've tried three kind of really academic people. Let's try a fundamentally different path. Yeah. And let's go find a really aggressive person that can work with those people, but is not those people.
2: Do you think there's a way to learn or to gain the intensity that Bezos has?
0: Wow. That's a... That's a very precise question. I think there's a way to learn a lot of different parts of entrepreneurship. I have not seen anyone intentionally develop that level of intensity from, you know, kind of the pot smoking surfer dude into like super intense driven. I I would say the closest thing I've seen is I've seen it happen in other veins of life, not in non kind of entrepreneur where people are lost in their lives and they, they find inspiration for purpose. Yeah. Um, it, as it relates to business, I've not seen anybody kind of shift from one type of business manager into the other. Um, but maybe there's something in that, like that finding inspiration and purpose. I think maybe that's, that's probably the best analog.
2: Yeah. You think that's where it comes from then? Like a a deeper sense of purpose that drives people?
0: On the personal side, I do on the business side, you know, I think it's as much fear of failure as it is you know, stri- striving to succeed or, you know, issues in terms of you know, <laughs> daddy issues, mommy issues, sh- you know, childhood issues and, <laughs> and wanting to prove something to the world. Uh, you know, I certainly know I have I have a lot of that. And, you know, when I look around at my peers in Silicon Valley and in the tech world, I see a lot of that going on there. I I don't, I wish it came from <laughs> a broader sense of purpose a lot of the time. Uh, I think that's out there sometimes, but, uh, but I don't see that as being the driving force as frequently as I'd like—that's for sure.
2: What are some ways you'd recommend, Dave, for for the entrepreneurs out there to to put their ego aside and and start focusing on more on results as opposed to the strategies or even the products and services that they're they they believe they're committed to when growing a business?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, again to kind of to kind of go back to what I learned watching Jeff was being right does not mean that you were right yesterday in your hypothesis, being right as a forward-looking and, and a forward-looking only uh-huh. issue. And that is very difficult for a lot of people to to digest, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time and energy in our in our subconscious trying to rationalize our behavior, trying to figure out, oh, well, you know, I'm a good person. Why did I why did I run that red light? Why did I go 90 miles an hour? Why did I make those poor decisions? And frequently we allow those rationalizations to bring us to a compromise in the future. Well, cool, then I'm gonna do half of that next time. If it was wrong, don't do any of it, right? Just, right. just let it go,
3: you, right.
0: you're done. That was yesterday. And, uh, and and all you have left is today and tomorrow. That's it, that's, that's all you got, focus on that. And the best thing you can do for today and tomorrow is not to rationalize yesterday, spend a little bit of energy to understand why. And then use that to inform how do I make decisions going forward? And ego, I, I think, is one of the most dangerous things in a business because it's so closely tied with intensity. The, okay. the yeah. two are seen kind of colloquially as one and the same. And I think they are fundamentally different in the way they drive you forward. And uh, to, to kind of put precise declarative language on it ego is the belief that you are right despite any and all evidence whereas intensity with this kind of you know go forward mentality is the belief that you can be right if you are are given the opportunity to continue driving forward and those are just to me, fundamentally different things. And you can, and you can kind of feel them in the room when, when you're in the room with somebody, which one it is that they're, are they, am I trying to prove I was right yesterday? Or am I trying to figure out how I and we get to hear? And it's not that it's altruistic. The
1: mm-hmm. first
0: part of that sentence was how do I, and we get to hear? right? Jeff bought a $500 million freaking yacht. Right? There, there's, there is no I and we on that, right? <laughs> There's no team and I on that one. It's it's, it's, that was about him. Yeah, but he was willing to forego having to be right yesterday because he didn't give a shit about that. There, yesterday him isn't going to make a hundred billion dollars. It's tomorrow him that's going to make a hundred billion dollars, and and I think that's very very difficult, especially when you're getting going and you're and you're leading a team for the first time. Oh my god, they're all looking at me. I better not admit I'm wrong. Oh my God! They're all looking at me. They need me to tell them what to do. And both of those sentences are kind of true, right? Like you, you better not be wrong. And one of the one of Jeff's key principles was always hire people that are right a wild majority of the time. And and you have to right in in, in that kind of environment. If you're wrong too much, it, it's that will be fatal. Yeah. And but if you're right ninety percent of the time your your failures are learning opportunities. If you're wrong 90% of the time, that's probably not going to end up being too good.
2: <laughs> Unless that 10% is a really big 10%. Yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly right.
0: I mean, it, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because the results are are not linear, right? The results yeah. are power law in almost everything. You know, there's, there's 1% of things that drive 90% of value. Like that, we're talking about Amazon average. I launched, I think, 18 products, at Amazon. Uh, I'd say probably 12 of them, you know, were modest successes or, or failures. And about eight of them have stuck around and are still around right now. And if you add up the other seven, they don't add up to be a quarter of Amazon advertising in terms of, you know, contribution mm. to, to Amazon's P&L. Yeah. That's how big that one was.
2: Yeah. All right. I want to, let's move into Redfin more. And sure. so I, I think that's a pretty incredible story. And that's, that's, you know has now grown into a publicly traded multi multi-billion dollar company how, how long did you were you with redfin
0: uh, about a year and a half okay. about 18 months so got it off the ground and then you know unfortunately we had a a big founder disagreement that resulted in uh, all but one of us uh, not being there anymore
2: oh wow how many of there were how many guys were, were oh,
0: 16 of us total
2: and then all of them left except one
0: <laughs> yeah it was uh yeah. you could kind of imagine where the line was drawn.
3: okay <laughs> yeah let's see
2: that uh,
0: yeah. and it informed you know i mean it is one of those situations where i learned a lot about w- what it means to be a co-founder versus being a ceo which is yeah. why i've been a ceo for the rest of my career was it watching that experience and how how you know, we talked about listening to data and listening to systems. You can be committed to the end vision, mm-hmm. but embrace today, embrace it every freaking time. Cause if you don't, you, that's all you got, right? I mean, life is marginal. You only exist in this one moment and you, and you got to kind of tackle it with everything you got. And we had a situation where everybody saw what was going on except for, uh, one of one of the co-founders. And so the employees actually staged a, uh, staged a coup d'etat on us one morning we came in mike mike uh, and i came in and we i think we had been having breakfast together because we were we were having a couple disagreements ourselves but like we were having breakfast together to kind of work it out we came in and all the employees were turned around and not facing their monitors facing the center of the room hey guys and they're like we need to talk to you okay and so they 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 full-on had a coup d'etat on (laughs) Honest, and we're like, "All right, tell us what you need." You know, we, and so we took them, the, the other two co-founders, and we took all the employees to to lunch and our early breakfast and lunch. Spent like four hours talking about what their what their problems were, and then we came back, and uh, you know, we kind of had a, a come to Jesus meeting. And I forgot in that moment that I was Jewish, so okay. Jesus didn't come. And uh, <laughs> so there you go. Uh-huh. And it turns out the CEO does have the power to fire everyone in the company, and so. You know, that was a, that was a lesson that I, I take with me today, that as a CEO, to carry the power that is, is held in that job with a lot of respect. Yeah. Um, and, to, to, oh, you know, I'm, I never say I'm a servant CEO. I used to say that earlier in my career. Again, I, I really want people to follow me and look, they're looking at me and how do I model the behavior I want to see? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not that dude. Now, I always ask my team, what do you need for me to get this done? But I think that's very different from being a servant ceo a servant leader and and think if you are trying too hard to be a servant leader you forget that you have the power to fire everyone you have yeah. the power to take their salary to zero hit their salary and double it you have the power to give them objectives and if you don't build that power you've created a power vacuum you have yeah. actively created a problem for making decisions in your organization and that's your fault and you should be fired for that
2: mm. That's really interesting because, you know, as you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, the a common theme that we see amongst entrepreneurs is start a company, become your own CEO, then replace yourself and, and go on to the next company. But it seems like you really, your superpower is right in that CEO seat. Like you, you really like that. Is that, is that what I'm getting?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I, gosh, and am i'm bordering on ego here i think i do a, i think you do a good job of balancing the powers that are required to do that and okay uh i like building though. i mean don't don't get me wrong right i mean for anyone that's watching the 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 video side of this like i have stuff behind me that i build and i build lots of it and i love it but i think having that combination of drive and I'm i'm 44 years old i've seen Lots of different versions of the business again, like kind of, kind of like Noah, right? Like I think Noah and I are almost exactly the same age and, mm-hmm. and, and you have enough experience that if you can lean on that experience, maintain the drive and intensity that you had that the rest of your career, but add the wisdom of the experience of well, I've, I've been on you know six or seven boards of directors. I've been on, uh, 10 or 20 boards of advisors. I've been an investor in 30, 40, 50 companies. I have seen companies get to multi-billions and go back to zero. I've seen companies get to multi-billions and continue to grow. I've seen companies that never got off the ground. I've seen all of them. And if you can combine that with intensity and, and the ability to truly listen to the data, I think that's what it takes to be a scaling CEO. Yeah. And there are certainly people that are better at certain phases and things like that. And, and it's not to say that I might not reach the phase where I say, look, I'm gonna step aside and do something else. But what I really like about my current endeavor is it combines all of my passions. I, I and have been on many, many nonprofits. I started my first nonprofit when I was 18 years old. I believe that we as a people make the world worse a lot of the time, and we owe it to ourselves and our kids to do what we can to make it better. And I found nonprofits to be an ineffective way to make the world a better place. And so, i my current company, we literally make the world, like, we literally make people safer in a way that nobody else can do. And so, I want to do that it also combines machine learning which you know we haven't talked a lot about but that's been my passion since i was i was very young Was it was technology and ai and, and machine learning and data and then the the third is being an entrepreneur and, and building an amazing product and so i get to do all three of those in this job and so this one specifically i would love to keep as long as i'm, I'm you know the best at it do
2: you have any tips dave like on on how people can like just easy tips on how people can get better at managing or observing their own data.
0: Yes, I have two. Okay. Uh, I'll give you two specific ones. Uh, One, use your calendar and, and track it. You can categorize it. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but I believe very fundamentally that the way that you spend your time determines the efficacy of you and your role, whether you're a project manager, a store manager, a software engineer, how you spend your time determines what you get done. And if how you spend your time does not reflect your priorities as an executive, as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, you're, again, letting your entire team down. And so I started a practice about eight years ago where I would have my assistant go through my calendar and categorize my my week and just big buckets, right? Like you're spending about 10% of your time with investors and, and 50% of your time on product and 20% of time on customer care. Well, that sucks because we have customer care problem. Let me just cancel 30% of my engineering meetings next week and let's figure out a way to reduce that down. So that's 20%. I need to find a way that I'm spending more time on customer care for at least the next three weeks. And that macro view through the lens of time, I find allows me to also to reflect. So uh, my thinking space is in the shower. So I'll, I'll once every couple of weeks, I'll take a really long shower and it just clears my head and, I, and I'm, I'm just focused, no distractions. And one of the things I always think about is, am I spending time on the right things? And the, the question I like to ask myself, that's kind of like a provocative question is, if I had all of my calendar back, where would I want to spend it? Where does my heart Pull me. And usually what I find in that answer is a hidden problem, a problem that I'm not working on yet or something that I, I want to assign to uh, one of my delegates, but I haven't been able to do that yet for whatever reason. And that's usually my best indicator of what's around the corner. My heart usually pulls me to what's around the corner where my brain's really focused on today. The second thing that I do is I track my to-do's very, very rigorous. And I think everybody does this. I do it in a way where I'm able to look back at my to do's at any point in time. So I date my to do lists, and I rewrite them. So I don't just kind of like let it continue sprawling every week, at least once a week, I scratch out my whole to do list, and I make a new one. And similarly, it's kind of a cleansing process, it forces me to go through a mechanism by which I look at things. If something has stayed on my short term to do list for two weeks, I have a problem. Period. Full stop. Either it didn't belong on my short-term to-do list in the first place, which means I am lying to myself somewhere. I need to fix that. Two, I don't have enough time to do my short-term to-dos. That's bad. That means that I'm running at 110% and I'm unable to get things done. Or three, I'm slipping. I'm, distracted by something there's something really big going on in my life and i'm unable to get to my tactical to-dos because your tactical to-do list should be a rinse and repeat at the highest level of executive capability you have to be able to feed yourself you have to be able to do these basic things and and your tactical to-do should be on that at at that level and so that's a kind of a personal self self health check for me
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: that am i Am I managing myself and my time effectively?
2: I uh, I can think of numerous short term to do list items that keep going on to my to do list <laughs> next week and the next week and the next week. And, no, and like, it,
0: it, it, I didn't mean you too too critical, but like it's it, for no, me, yeah, no, yeah. if I see myself and I force myself to rewrite the list, so I I yeah. take it and I, I open up a new page and I rewrite it. And if I find myself rewriting it again, a manual task, it's annoying. That's why it's because it needs to be annoying to say, hey, hey, You know, flick yourself in the face, a little slap. Wake up. You really don't need to do this, or you need to delegate this, or you need to really look in the eye and say, You're not going to get this done. What does that mean for the business? Yeah. Because when you keep it on the to-do list, you've convinced yourself you're going to do it.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And again, as a CEO, that's that doesn't affect you as much nearly as much as it affects everybody downstream.
2: Yeah. I get that. I think almost too. Sometimes it's it's important to let things like that die, you know, not always, but let if you can't delegate it or find the time to delegate it or do it yourself, because if you let those things die, then you just free up mental space in your own. Absolutely. Right. As opposed to like, oh, I'll do it next week. Oh, I'll do it next week. Oh. And it's been like two months and that thing is still on my to-do list. I just. Oh, and it uses sweating.
0: up a, a disproportionate <laughs> amount of your emotional energy. That's true. It's it's what yeah. you're dreaming about at night now because it's, it's, you know, and, and what I find about the act of removing it from the list, even if I even if I do let it die, is I'm actively making okay. What do I need to change if this doesn't get done? Yeah. You're forcing yourself to ask that question, and that question is typically pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Because you're you've written kept it on the to do to do list for a reason because you want it to get done. You believe that it needs to get done, but forcing yourself to have that uncomfortable conversation this this isn't going to happen. All right. I need to change the way this team is staffed. I need to admit that I'm not going to hit my budget. I need to hire someone, right? Like yeah. whatever that is, you, you're way better off facing that reality than you are hiding from it by keeping it on the to-do list.
2: Yeah. That makes sense. You mentioned too, like why problem selection selection is the number one thing entrepreneurs should focus on. And can, can you give some examples of that? Oh man. Yeah. Let's go through some stuff
0: for sure. So, so this, I didn't really understand this to, to, to be honest for a lot of my career. I had some friends at Google that were early on and they said, you know, I I presented this opportunity to the executive team. And they said, because it's not a billion dollar idea, we're not going to continue investing. So that's dumb. You could make a ton of money. And then some of my friends started becoming uh, VCs and I became LPs and some funds. And I started looking at my own investments and I started watching the way that capital flowed through various types of equity partners. And I'm going to bucket them into kind of three big chunks. First one is the one that everybody knows in, in tech which is the vc chunk the second chunk is private equity and the third chunk is what i'll call family offices like individuals investing capital not like those other two chunks because you can't have family offices that do venture investments right but, but like acting like a family office and if you look at the way that they make money and i'm going to reduce each of those buckets to one core equation Uh, I'm going to start with the family office. The way a family office makes money is they buy, invest in, or build a business that generates more cash on an annual basis than it consumes. And it's able to sustain doing that for a long period of time. And then they use that cash to do another one. That's kind of a nice, like that's how we think politically and and colloquially about business in, in, in America. Right. Private equity buy something typically in some form of distress and they do something they call value add, they change it a little bit, they fire a bunch of people and then run it for a year proving that they can run it on those lower expenses and then they sell it for more, uh, sometimes for less, but most of the time they do it, they sell it for more and they make their money not by the operations of the business, but in those moments of transaction. That's a transactionally driven business. Venture capital is like private equity times 10, which is they invest in, in, on an, in an average fund. They invest in 20 companies, of which they expect two to be 100Xs and those you know 25 to 100Xs. And if you do the math there, right, if you get two of them, then you've at least uh, more than doubled the money. And then the other 90% of their investments, they don't give a shit about. And they, they would rather have them die out and spend time keeping them alive. So, what type of business generates each of those types of returns is fundamental to how do I want to live and how do I want to finance my business and how long do I want to be doing my job? If I want to start a phenomenal HVAC business doing air conditioning and eating, I probably don't want to do it in that third category. I definitely don't want to do it in the third category. Right? I probably don't want to do it with private equity, and I probably do want to do it something more like a cash flow business. And that's what I mean by problem selection. What, what is the, the industry? What is the type of business? And, and how do I align that with my life, how many hours I want to work in and, and the financing parts? I have lots of friends that run family businesses. They've inherited business from their mother or their father, and it's, you know, three generations long and it generates half a million bucks or a million bucks or two million bucks or five million bucks a year of cash. Mm-hmm. And I have a lake house and I work, you know, three hours a week and rock on. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's this, right? Like those people will, sometimes they dream of going public and, you know, generating venture returns, but they are either in an industry or they are running a business in a methodology that, that matches that financial model. And, you know, maybe I, I jumped the shark here by going straight to financial model. But I mean, ultimately, a, a, a business is about how do you generate returns, whether those are equity returns or cash flow returns. And so if you want to do something for any sort of sustainable period of time, I think you have to know what is the financial model you're operating in. And does that financial model align with what you're trying to do? Like so with deep Sentinel, our current business, we had to build hardware. In order to build hardware because i did not have experience building hardware i needed to go venture capital route
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and in order to go the venture capital route i needed to know how do i generate 100x returns on 10 million in generate a billion dollar return and so that ability to answer that question honestly and precisely determines whether i'm able to raise venture capital uh now a lot of people go a different route they go you know again kind of garage entrepreneur or they can go kind of private equity with it, but how you answer that, where you are going and and what are the probabilities of achieving success in each of those things are entirely determined by what is the problem you're solving and how are you going about it?
2: Right. You spend a lot of time in the tech world and, and before the show, we were talking a little bit about the, the mindset and the types of personalities you find in the tech world. And you mentioned that most most people in the tech world are pretty much assholes, and I'm I'm curious why do you think that is, and where do you think that comes from?
0: You know, Chris, I, I, I I'm going to presume that this segue was somewhat intentional because I think it is tied to the to the model, right? Like tech is pretty pretty directly driven by the venture financing model, yeah, and that's high risk, high reward, and it's driven by the uh, celebrity entrepreneurs, uh, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musk, the Jeff Bezoses, right? Like you, you put Jeff Bezos in the, the title of this podcast, you're going to get 100 times more listeners than if you put David Selinger as awesome as I am. Surprising. And, you know, it, it's, it takes massive amounts of risk to say, hey, I want to sign up for a program where my board of directors is people who are going to bet that if I am in that top 10%, I get all their attention and their money and their support. And if I am not, they will maintain that level of control over my business, potentially not show up to my board meetings and certainly not really give a care about what my results are. Yeah, I'm signing up for that on day one. Now a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize they're signing up for this on day one, but that's literally the equation that you are signing up for. You yeah. are signing up. Or a 90, a nine to one odds success rate, where in that, if you're part of the nine, you're invisible. Yeah. And if you're part of the one, you're a hero. You're on the, the cover of, you know, Venture Beat and Inc. and Forbes and blah, 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 blah. And to do that, you know, again, we talked a lot about ego kind of earlier on here. That takes either an immense amount of knowledge that other people don't have. Or an immense amount of ego to go right, Ah, sweet! Here are all these grads from MIT and Harvard and Carnegie Mellon and USC. Even not not that many USC guys, but uh, and gals. But that's okay. That's okay. I mean, look, the Trojans are good for something. We just haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> uh, and uh, and so it, it's full of people that are really bright. And I'm just going to go and beat ninety percent of them. Sign me up for that. Right. That's. That is not a generally like, hey, let's go out and have a beer and be buddies and like take care of the world and make it a better place type people. Right. Those are that people makes that sense. Are to, to look the look the bear in the eye and say, "Sweet, here I am. I'm I'm a buck fifty, and you're a five hundred pound bear, and I'm going to tear, tear your teeth off."
2: <laughs> well, again, that kind of goes back to the intensity that that we were talking about earlier. Like, a person has to have a significant amount of intensity but also in a way apathy yep and i don't know if that's 100%. the best word to use but but you know i think some quite often it ends up like that right
0: Latent disregard
2: yeah would be the other way to kind of look at it right like yeah and if
0: you look at it like we in success cases we celebrate those
3: yeah and that is yeah. what,
0: if you're going to play a nine-to-one game that's what's required to win a nine-to-one game
3: mm-hmm. you
0: have to Look it in the eye, stare it down and just keep going. Look it in the eye, watch your buddy to your right get torn to shreds and not even take the time to look at him right. other than to say, I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go this way. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's, again, it's fundamental to the financial model. And so then that trickles into the problem selection and trickles into the entrepreneur selection. And, okay. and you are, if you, if you're getting, use this nine, nine to one odds approach, you are better off getting a hyper-egotistical founder who does not listen to anyone ever, you have a higher likelihood of succeeding with that person than you are with somebody who does listen to people and is a little bit hesitant. Mm. And, and so it's, it's you know, again, I I, I I would hesitate to judge the actual individual, but if, again, if you just look at the rules of the game and then you say, well, what's the personality that's gonna win that game? It's, it's exactly what you just said. It's an ap- apathetic, a, Person who's going to have blatant disregard for everything and an ego that says forward is the way, right? And and again, you're better off having a, a, a ill-suited human being for the universe that's willing to say forward is the way, full ego, no knowledge, just go. Than you are having somebody who's really bright but hesitant.
2: Yeah, and, and if you look at some of the world leaders of the past, especially a lot of the dictators, it's exactly the personality types that they were, you know, that just wanted to conquer the world and take advantage and didn't listen to a lot of people. You know, this is, this is the way we're going. How does that change? Or is there always going to be a percentage of people that are going to play at that level?
0: Well, I mean, this is the prisoner's <laughs> dilemma, right? I mean, we are all prisoners of the world. And and as long as we have systems where all it takes is one bad actor, then you will be subject to that. And, and, um, you know, one of the things I love about America uh, is that, that system exists, but then you have not necessarily immediate, but but corrective behaviors over time. And, and it's designed to be conservative to a certain degree. And when I say conservative, I don't mean Republican. Let me just be really clear
1: mm-hmm. for
0: two reasons. One, I don't know that the Republican Party is, is conservative anymore. But number two, like that's not what I mean. What I mean is that a system that changes carefully and slowly, right? One of the biggest conversations the founding fathers had. And I think that we should continue to have because the founding fathers were not right about everything. Right. There you go. There's some sacrilege Oof. for your, your <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Right. <laughs> uh, is that a, a system that changes too rapidly is going to be overly reactionary and is not going to create the stability of the institutions that right. allow a nation to grow. And yet America has this great way of kind of embracing reality. Uh, sometimes it's too slow and sometimes, you know, it doesn't, doesn't quite get there. We create our own problems for sure, but we have systems where we can hash it out. We can have conversations. And yes, parts of the media are pulling us to to, to be further apart. And our politicians are all a-holes. And, you know, yeah, those are true. That's more true everywhere else, though, right? Like the fact that we can have freedom of speech that has controls, right? Like no freedom that we have here is unbounded because we live in a country that has more than one person in it. Mm-hmm. Period. Full stop. Right. Like, that is the context. As soon as you live in a country that has more than one person, in it, there are boundaries. You do not have infinite freedom of speech. And that's why, you know, I'm, I've been watching this Alex Jones trial with a lot of interest because I think it's really important that we have people like Alex Jones, again, please sacrilege here, who are willing to kind of put their neck on the line and say things. I think it is equally important, if not more so important that we have a system that is willing to hold them accountable. Right and And that is whoa, really? Can you really say both of those things? Yeah, I say both of those things because without people that are willing to put it out there, whether you're you're you believe Alex Jones or not, that freedom of speech with accountability is amazing because right. it allows us to have this dialogue. absolutely. And whether that's within our family unit, within our our community. Most countries are not even allowed to talk about things like that. Yeah. And we yeah. don't realize how important that is. The fact that I can go on Facebook and I got I had a former employee who was like uh, uh well, the former CEO of Overstock is a friend of mine. And um Patrick Byrne, he's been on the news a lot because he's testified in front of the January 6th. And I I am a big supporter of the fact that he is investigating these things. I am also a really big supporter that. If this takes him down, that's exactly what should happen mm. because I personally think that he's, he's wrong in his conspiracy theories, but let me tell you, if you don't have people that are allowed to discuss and allowed to explore conspiracy theories, you know, the government will win eventually yeah. and, and conspiracies will happen. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to have accountability on all sides. And I, I love that, man. I, I, I truly do love that about our country.
2: That's a really good point. I was really impressed with I, re- I was reading one of your most important leadership lessons and it's it's pretty blunt and direct and it's it's don't lie. And while that appears obvious for most people, I think if most people say they never lie, they're probably lying to themselves. And like I've, you know, I go back and look back on my life and, you know, sometimes it's easy to say a little white lie and maybe mm-hmm. you're doing it to your parents or to your children or to your spouse or something. And then, and then that can actually turn into a habit. And I think all of us have done this multiple times in our lives. What are, how do we hold ourselves accountable to do that? Yeah, to I love, not I
0: love that back. you found that one. That's probably my favorite yeah. self. As, as you can <laughs> tell, like, I, I like looking at myself through a microscope to, to, and it gets unhealthy at times, but
3: <laughs> it um,
2: can't be yeah uh,
0: i have the same you know, be, way, but... being yeah. autistic uh, I'm, I'm like kind of in the middle of the autism spectrum and and it allows me to apply a whole set of skills to myself that you know can kind of go overboard but when i was 19 or 20 i was 20 i was trying to rationalize some things that i was doing and i and i held my dad in very high regard god mm-hmm. like, oh, would my dad do this he has very high integrity and Oh my gosh, here I am doing all these bad things. I, I'll never live up to my dad. And right? I guess I already mentioned daddy issues. I had I have my own. And the first thing that I did was I was like, Well, you know, I I'm, I'm pretty honest. Why don't I count how many times I lie in a day? Mm-hmm. And just like you said, there were Frequent, like, oh yeah, and I put the milk back. I didn't put the fucking milk back. You know, it's like, <laughs> why did I choose to say I put the milk back? Like that, that could turn into that could turn into a whole freaking thing. Right. And right. so I counted, and I counted over the course of a week. And My average, I believe, it was like 19 times a day I would choose to say something that I knew wasn't true, and they
2: weren't. And this is when you, were, you were a kid, really or. No, I
0: was, I was 20 at the time. So these are, these these are like to my dorm mates or my teacher or, you know, my girlfriend, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, and, and usually they were really little, right. They were really, really little things. And, but I forced myself to really, to count them. Even if it was the smallest thing in the world, if I knew it wasn't true, I counted it. It was an average of about 19 times a day. Wow. And what I realized was those 19 times when, when you, again, kind of are lying to yourself and you assume it's zero. And then I looked at how much emotional energy I spent rationalizing. Ah, oh, well, that's okay. Cause, you know, nobody's really going to look or doesn't hurt anybody. I spent a disproportionate amount of my emotional energy on those things. Mm. And as they would spiral out of control, the shape of the curve of emotional energy is exponential, right? I put the milk, oh, hey, I just noticed the milk isn't back. Yeah oh, I, I, and now your relationship's on the table, right? Oh my God, right? Two and a half ounces of milk, 25 cents, right? Whatever. Yeah. Turned into a fight with my best friend where now our trust and our entire kind of relationship is on the table over 25 cents. And so I made a commitment to myself at that point to start tracking white lies and do my best to just wipe them out. And, you know, nobody's nobody's perfect, but it's something that I've committed myself to and that way in my marriage and with my kids and and with everything, you know, oh, or cheating at games. Oh my God, I'm so competitive. I would cheat at every freaking card game, every
3: single <laughs> game I played all the time,
0: all the time, dude. I was the best cheater too. And I was really good at it. Yeah. And so now as a dad, right, if you do that as a dad, you got to track all that stuff, right? <laughs> You got to manage it, and as a as a boss, you got to manage it. You got to own it. You got to remember every lie you've said, and kind yeah. of carrying. That's the this is a typical kind of story of lies. I had never tried living all the way on the other end, and it's so cleansing. Mm. And you know, all all of the directed energy you hear me kind of just pushing towards this and this and this is about never spending time looking back with emotion. Right. It's the past is is data. And again, this is, I'm talking about business, not life, like in life that is hundred percent not true. And you can't do that. Or I hope you can't. But when I was able to kind of contain this, I'm able to control where I pour all of my emotional energy. And, you know, we talked about bulletproof coffee and all this stuff. When I wake up in the morning, I am able to direct hundred percent of the emotional energy I have for work to what is the problem of the day? How do we, how do we move forward? And it has a problem because most people don't operate that way. So like I'll say, Hey, we completely fucked this thing up yesterday. And I'm really, uh, I really don't want to do that again. I'm upset about it. And here's what I'd like to do going forward. Yeah. Sometimes you'll, when I'm that directed, my employees will hear you fucked up yesterday and I'm, and I'm really mad at you. And so I have to be really careful and I'd have to unwind those conversations a lot of the time, but me in my heart, in my mind. If I'm mad at you, I'm probably going to fire you. Like the, the let's just <laughs> you're still here. <laughs> we're still here. We're good, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> we're having a conversation about today and tomorrow. Trust me, right? Like what, when we're if we're spending too much time talking about yesterday, this is a bad conversation for for you. Right. And right. but I find most a lot of people don't work that way, but it does allow me to be that way, and I like being that way. I love being you know as much as close to 100% forward looking as possible.
2: Nice. I want to wrap this up by talking about your daily schedule and routines and sleep schedule and, and, and habits and health, because I'm always dissecting how high performers like yourself are, are staying on top of things. And we talked about Bulletproof coffee and your concoction that you put turmeric and ginger in your Bulletproof coffee, but, but, uh, wake up time and take us through uh, a regular day with, with Dave.
0: Sure. So I am going to start with go to sleep time, if that's okay. going to change your question just slightly.
2: Yep. That's cool. Uh,
0: so I, and the reason is because just from a priority perspective, I think sleep is way, way, way high up on the list. And it's making its way back to kind of through the cycles it tends to go into fashion and out of fashion, into fashion, out of fashion. But I think sleep is probably one of the number one things that I, I did not track. And I just started about two years ago, two and a half years ago. And I, I really, it's a, it's a lifelong, that's a lifelong commitment. I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. So I wear a Fitbit to bed. I tried the Apple watch and the fact that the Apple watch lasts like 30 hours is just <clears throat>. so a Fitbit lasts six days, five to six days. And so I can do that. A lot of my friends use the aura ring. That guy, Josh, that I was telling you about earlier. He yeah. just loves the aura ring because like yeah. it lasts like 30 days or something like that. I'm just cheap. I don't want to, <laughs> I probably need to get an aura ring and I probably will in the next year, but uh, I, I, I have a Fitbit and I check. The average number of hours I sleep a night over the course of a week, I kind of look at it in units of week. If you just do one night, you can kind of over over swing and things like that. So I look at the last week and I look at the quality of sleep. I look at how often I wake up at night, how long am I awake for, how much time do I spend in deep sleep? Was I able to get there and stay there for a while? And so that's actually one of the first things I look at usually in the, in the morning. So just check like, Hey, am I on target or am I off target? And I will change the rest of my day based on my sleep. Mm-hmm. So if I did not sleep well, I will modify, the, especially the beginning and the backside of my day, to make sure I'm not making big decisions or kind of overexposing myself. Yeah. Uh, I wake up, I make my coffee, 45 minutes later I'm done making my coffee, and I, uh, I take my daughter to school. It takes about 10 minutes, I'm just
3: kidding. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. I frequently will pre-mix 80% of it for a week, so I'll make a, a one-week batch. And then I take my younger daughter to school. She goes to school like 20 minutes south of us. So I, I pop her in the car and she and I get to talk on the way down. We'll listen to Harry Potter, Audible books and things like that. And that's an important part of my day too, because when I was a kid, my folks didn't spend enough time with me and that created regret and created schisms for us and trust. Mm-hmm. And so again, where you spend your time is where your priorities are. So I want to make sure that I do that every day. I have a little bit of time on the bookends committed, 100% mm-hmm. committed not on my phone. I'm not taking calls. I'm not reading my email while I'm driving. I'm 100% with my daughter. Then I do take a call on the way home usually starting at 830 to 845. I work 100% through the day. I'm at home on Zoom. Uh, Lunch is my big kind of weak point because I sometimes will schedule through my lunch. So I typically will have my assistant order lunch if I'm scheduled all the way through just to make sure I have a low carb, Medium protein kind of get me through the end of the day without crashing in the afternoon. Yeah By about 2 3 o'clock. I'm eating dark chocolate, which I I don't usually like to admit that Uh, I like to claim I'm a superhuman and I just make my way through. (laughs) It's not true Um, I try to keep it to dark chocolate and not too much sugar and then by 6 o'clock I like to have dinner with my family 6 to to 9 o'clock. I like to have for family time We can watch a movie watch a TV show my kids and I play Dungeons and Dragons um, we play, uh, a, a online role-playing game called don't starve. And so really try to, I had a bunch of Mormon friends growing up as a kid. And I love the fact that they played games as a family. It was like the coolest thing yeah. in that yeah. community. And so I, we try to recreate that as much as we can as a family as well. And then between nine and two o'clock, I can work if I want to, depending on how much sleep I had the night before. And then sometimes my wife and I oh, will nice. sit and watch a TV show for half an hour.
2: Yeah. And, and bedtime
0: so bedtime is, is dependent on how I slept the night before anytime from 10 o'clock till two. I do take Ambien about once or twice a month to try to help kind of reset my sleep schedule if I'm off. Okay. So I use Ambien not to sleep, but to reset the schedule. So if my weekly schedule has been slipping, I'm going to 10, to bed at 10, 11, midnight, one, two, Keeps three. Keeps pushing back. Yeah. Am. So then I will use Ambien just to reset and force me to go to sleep at an earlier date. Cool. um other than that if i'm if i just need a, a slight reset i'll use melatonin yeah and i find that works okay uh it's not great it doesn't have a big hangover though which is what i like about it whereas with the mpn i get a little bit of a hangover
2: yeah it makes sense
0: in terms of exercise in the middle i will squeeze that in anywhere i'm not very regular with my exercise and i, I wish i were that would be something i'm working on I, I row and i ride my mountain bike those are my two major exercises nice
2: sounds like a great high performance schedule
0: it's, it's a little overly focused on work right now. I would say like, I, I definitely need to get out and exercise a little more. Oh no, that's not true. I swim with my daughter. So frequently we have a pool. I go out and I swim with her in the evenings and that's, we do, we, she, she loves night swimming cause you turn the lights on and it feels like a party. Oh yeah. Oh, so, uh, being in California, we can do that pretty late into the year.
2: It's so easy for us to do as entrepreneurs, just to overly focus on work, you know, cause we're obsessed about it. Right. We're obsessed about uh-huh. our businesses they are and there are babies, right? And, oh. and and they're part of who we are. And and you know, I find myself even though, like, 2019, I gave myself uh, my theme was "do less, better." Do less, better. And even though, like, I did really good at that in 2019, but then 2020, and 2021 came around, and mm-hmm. you know, we're a lot. We were on the lockdown, and uh, and so. Were I mean, you
0: in like, Spain at the time?
2: No, I was. I was in Austin, and okay. uh, so I was in a good place. Fortunately, I wasn't here, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like it's just it's, something will change. We'll get a new project. We'll get a new business that comes up a new investment. And all of a sudden we're, we're in focus mode again and all 80% of our hours are being consumed by work and then we've yeah. got to get back at it. So your batching and scheduling is a fantastic idea. I like, I love that. And I'm going to start to apply that actually.
0: I do like that. It, it, it helps me like right now. I know that I'm off because I measure
2: yeah. it. Yeah. So you guys, uh, tip to take away: measure your calendars, not weight wise, time wise. You guys, um, <laughs> that's incredible, Dave. I've 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 loved this. Like I, I've got so many takeaways. You probably see me looking down here. I'm not checking my phone. I'm taking notes because I love like picking guest brains, and and sometimes like I'll just get so much from the guest I have to take notes during the show, and I did that, and and. You know, tracking a calendar, uh, seeing where the, the majority of your time goes. That's a fantastic thing. Tracking your lies. See how many times you guys lie in a week. See those little white lies. If you say you don't it's gonna have It's going to be a any. lot
0: more than you thought if you I don't know, track it.
2: Even if you said you didn't stop at that stop sign and you actually, or you, you stopped at the stop sign and you actually didn't. So track those, you guys. And any times you do this, you get so much awareness. Uh, you get to be a fly on the wall of your life. And uh, I've actually numerous times in my life have spent uh, a week or two at a time writing down what I do every 20 minutes for a couple weeks. And you get to learn so much from that. So that's another one, a good one as well. But Dave, man, thank you so much for sharing all the tips and tricks and, and wisdom with us. Uh, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with before we wrap up?
0: I mean, I, I would be I'd be uh, completely in the wrong if I didn't at least mention my, my business, which is Deep Sentinel, yes, let's talk about, um, especially for for those entrepreneurs that have assets. It's a security company. We're the only company that sells cameras that includes guards. So check it out. It, what that means is that if, if somebody comes onto your property, they're committing a burglary or vandalism. Our guards will actually stop it. We use two-way audio sirens. When we call the police, they come.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's
0: a it's a great business. Like I mentioned, it's it's really rewarding for me. If you want to learn more about that, go to our YouTube channel. You can watch tons of us stopping crimes, everything from uh, protecting construction sites to RV sites and car sites, and you know, actually preventing domestic violence. Like it's it's a great business. Um, our YouTube channels is just, go to YouTube and search for Deep Sentinel. Other than that, you know, I, I I love the questions that you ask. I like, can tell you've got a really thoughtful audience. And you know, if I if I could leave them with one last thing, is that, that a lot of this introspection can spiral, right? And and you know, I I mentioned it a little bit offhandedly and kind of jokingly, but you know, the the mental health of entrepreneurs I think is really really important. Mental health is important. Period. Full mm-hmm. stop. Right. Like, and it's easy when you become introspective to become hypercritical. And mm-hmm. you know, again, I I would encourage the listeners that hey if you're feeling, you know, like you need help, like go, go act go get it, you know, just like work. If you have an employee who needs help getting a box shipped, you would certainly hope that they would go get help getting that box shipped instead of letting it sit there. Do the same for yourself. Yeah. If you're having trouble managing your mental health, go get help. It's okay. It's not an admission of a failure. It's if anything, it's a sign of strength that you're able to look inside, see what you're seeing. And respond to it and it's a model. Like mm-hmm. it, 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 it's like saying, I never expect to get a cold and never have to go to the doctor. You're that's dumb. Period. Yeah. Zero percent of human beings will make it through their life. Getting to say that same thing applies to your mental health. Zero percent of people make it through life without needing a little bit of help, whether that's your friend or professional, go do it. And 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 it's it's wearing, it's, you know, if you sit and you count your lives, like I had a mental health breakdown after I counted my eyes. I was like, oh my God, I'm a horrible person. <laughs> and I had to go like deal with that. And, and the greatest way to be the best you is to embrace all of those things and do it in a way that's, that's healthy you. So sorry, that was a little bit of a, that's great. Yeah. Off and I don't stick, but I, but I believe it. I mean, I've lost friends who gave their life up because of their business and that's, there's nothing worse, right? There's not a bigger loss in the world. Yeah. than to take something that certainly takes up a lot of your time, but it isn't the most important part of you. Exactly. You aren't your business.
2: Yeah. It's a, that's an a incredible way to end a podcast, Dave. I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for everything that you shared. It's been fantastic. I really appreciate it, my friend. Thank you, Dave.
0: Hey, Awesome. Thank you for having me.
2: And listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today and we'll see you on the next episode.